Palm Sunday is one of the top five Sundays of the Christian calendar to me. I love Palm Sunday. It uh, kicks off the last week of Lent. It also kicks off what's known as Holy Week on the Christian calendar. And what's so cool about Holy Week is these are the seven days of history that the Bible spends more square footage focusing on the actual events of these seven days than any other seven-day period in all of history. And it's the same in all four of the Gospels. It's like you, it kind of speeds through the life of Jesus, but when it hits today, this Sunday, everything slows down, and it just deals with just all the amazing details of every moment of every day of this week. And so, we're going to be taking a look today uh, at the event that gives Palm Sunday its name, the, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. But actually, we're not going to park there, because today I am most interested in something that happens immediately after that. And today we're wrapping up our series that's been based uh, around the Gospel of Mark. One of my favorite Gospels is Mark is just so amazing the way he tells the story and the way he frames some of the things that Jesus was saying and doing. We've been looking, if you're new with us, or more deeply into what it looks like to follow Jesus. Jesus offers this invitation to his disciples and to us to follow me. He says, follow me. It's an invitation into the kingdom of God, which is heaven breaking into our current reality. And it's an invitation to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, live as divine image bearers. And uh, by the way, I, I want to acknowledge a huge debt to scholars, uh, and because uh, some people ask me, you know, where do you get uh, some of the, the facts and the interpretations of Scripture, uh, and um, some of the scholars that have been really instrumental in helping me uh, with this series is scholars like Bruce Hansen. Uh, he's a brilliant scholar. There's another one, uh, Dr. Timothy Gombus, who wrote the commentary on Mark uh, that I just can't recommend highly enough. Um, it's part of the Story of God Bible Commentary, by the way, which is put out by the, the brilliant Scott McKnight. And um, these, uh, it's a separate book for each book of the Bible. It's just a really great, uh, if, if you're able to come across any of these commentaries, they're super good. Anyway, so today we want to, first of all, we want to look, we're going to spend just a few minutes looking at how Mark describes Jesus' Palm Sunday entry into Jerusalem. So this is Mark chapter 11. Do you want to go there or is it on the screen? Here we go. Chapter 11, verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there. And then there's this little phrase, which no one has ever written. R written. Um, the, the reason why this phrase is, is significant, it's because uh, in Jesus' day, any animal that the king rode on would be, he would be the only one who ever wrote on it, right? It would only be written by the king. And so Jesus is being very self-aware here he, he, in this symbolic statement that he's making. He's showing himself on purpose as a kingly figure here. The whole thing that we're going to see over the course of this, <coughs> this weekend of Jesus uh, is really just this brilliant piece of you know, we might call it performance art. He's, do, he's living out a parable in the, his actions. Every action he makes is just so measured and purposeful. It's really brilliant when we get to see it. And so then Jesus says, if anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say the Lord needs it. Notice, not Jesus needs it or we need it, but the Lord. This is the first time Jesus uses this title for himself. 
And so it indicates that Jesus is really entering into a new phase. This final week of his life here on earth, he's entering a new phase. He's really establishing the kingship, his kingship and his lordship. Uh, he says, and I'll send it back shortly. So notice Jesus here and throughout this uh, this part is, is really driving the action forward, right? He's not being passive. He's not just like, you know, whatever happens, I guess, you know, oh, you found a donkey. Okay, I'll ride that. He's doing something very, very specific. Verse 4, <clears throat> excuse me, they went and found a colt outside on the street, tied at a doorway. Now, this is interesting because Jesus, for his entire life, his entire ministry up to this point, he has been walking everywhere. There's no record of him riding anything. So it's significant that now he's riding something into Jerusalem. He's consciously fulfilling this picture. And it's a picture that was prophesied back in the Old Testament in the book of Zechariah. So let's read what Zechariah says. In Zechariah chapter 9, it was prophesied, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your kingdom comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And here's why it's a donkey and not a horse, as most kings would be expected to be riding on. He says, because I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be broken. Now, if you take away the chariots and the war horses and the bows, what are you bringing to the city? Peace. You're bringing peace, right? It's a picture of, it's, it's, a, it's a peace that brings an end to war. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from river, from the river to the ends of the earth, referring to the River Jordan. So Jesus is doing all of this very consciously. I want us to just kind of understand, here's Jesus. He's doing everything very intentionally. Everybody around would know the Zechariah 9 thing, so they'd be recognizing, oh, look what's happening. So Jesus, what is he saying to the people? I am the king. This is the return of the king right here. But I'm not coming as a war hero with my hands all bloody, right, and my sword out. I'm coming as the Messiah of peace, absolutely. But notice how the people react. We'll go back to Mark. Mark 11, verse 7. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it, and many people spread their cloaks on the ground while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. We know from the other Gospels that these were uh, palm branches that they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, why palm branches, ladies and gentlemen? And, and why are they shouting Hosanna? Uh, because, and the reason is, just a real quick little history lesson here, 200 years earlier, a very different messianic figure entered into the city of Jerusalem in this very same manner. Around 164 BC, uh, there was, uh, uh, they, there was uh, a, a messiah figure who came. This was during the horrific time in Judah, as it was called, of the Seleucid Empire. These are Greeks. The Seleucid Empire, before the Romans, everybody was ruled by Greeks, and, and the Greeks were ruled by this, the, one of the worst human beings that ever lived, Antiochus I, and he was just this horrible, we won't go into all of him, he was just this terrible, terrible human being. And there was this Jewish revolt, and for this tiny, relatively tiny, 80-year period, there was Jewish independence. Like in all the centuries where they're being ruled and just persecuted by everybody, there's this tiny little window of 80 years where they had glorious 
independence. They fought. There was a revolt that led to this. It was a revolution led by a group called the Maccabees. And uh, the Maccabean victory happened to coincide with this festival of Sukkot, which was this eight-day festival where you would wave palm branches because it sounded like rain. And so they would wave the palm branches. And and so when they they rode in to cleanse the temple, to to, uh, rededicate the temple because Antiochus was just this awful person. He like sacrificed a pig to Zeus in the temple. It was a horrible thing. It made everybody mad. And so they rededicated the temple. And this is where we also have the miracle of the oil for eight days where we get Hanukkah today. All this is happening during this time. And everyone's rejoicing and singing and waving these palm branches, which became for the Jewish people a symbol of military victory over their Greek oppressors. Okay, so the palm branch was a symbol. During this time of independence, they got to rule themselves. They even minted their own coins. And so there's coins that they found that they've dug up uh, from this day. And on all these coins, on one side is palm branches, right? Because that was the symbol, Jewish independence. In fact, over the years and the decades and the centuries, the palm branch became such a symbol of Jewish liberation and revolution that during the Roman occupation, when we get to Jesus' day, they were outlawed. Palm branches, waving palm branches, bringing them out, was outlawed because of their subversive symbolism. It's why Luke records that when Jesus enters the city and the people are waving palm branches, the the Pharisees are begging Jesus to tell the crowd, stop doing this, calm down, right? Because you're going to get us all in trouble. And so the crowd sees Jesus walking in, and of course, Jesus, he's riding a colt, and the crowd's like, oh, we know about this. They, you know, they heard just a week ago, he raised somebody from the dead, uh, and he's coming down the street. This is a very big deal. This is when the Lord is returning to Zion. He's right, he's bringing victory. So naturally, what do they do? They follow the Maccabean script, right? This is our next Judah Maccabee. Judah Maccabee was one of the revolutionaries who brought it. Maccabee means the hammer. This is Judah the hammer. Number two, here he comes, right? He's coming. We're going to wave palm branches and notice what they're singing. They're singing Hosanna, which isn't just a great song lyric. It means, it's this word Hoshana, and it literally means save us save us. And do you think when they're saying save us, it means take us all to heaven when you die, when we die? No, it's literally save us from our oppressors. Hoshana, save us. And then they quote Psalm 118, which is the the entire psalm, is about God delivering his people through this military victory, if you go back and read it. And they say, blessed are you who comes in the name of the Lord. So what are they saying? They're saying, we see Jesus in the same way. We see Judah Maccabee, the hammer. He's riding in. And so Jesus, we know you're coming to deal with Rome, right? Rome, this latest in a long line of oppressors. And so they're hoping Jesus will be the one that comes. He brings peace through the destruction of Rome. Are you with me? Everybody with me? All right. Little history lesson there. We're done with, uh, we're pretty much done with the history. Okay. And so they even shout, What do they shout? They shout, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Notice what they're saying. Kingdom of our father, David. Are they saying, bring the kingdom of heaven, bring the kingdom of God that Jesus has been preaching? No, it's the kingdom of David, right? Bring kingdom of David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Now, like I said, we're not going to park here today uh, because I want to get to what happens next. See, all, and what's interesting is all of this feels like a, a massive amount of buildup, the way Mark tells it. But look at what Jesus does next. Jesus entered Jerusalem, and he went to the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went back to Bethany with the twelve. 
Now, I don't know about you, but that seems a little anticlimactic to me, right? It's like they do all of this thing, and then they get there, and Jesus is like, guys, you know, actually, it's about, you know, Taco 30. Let's get back and get some grub. So what Mark is telling us, though, is so brilliant. Some of these little details, it's easy for us to just kind of skip right by that verse when we read this in English 2,000 years later. But when it says, Jesus went into the temple courts and he looked around at everything, this immediately recalls Old Testament language, the Old Testament scriptures, where it says that God would come and examine his nation to see if it were fruitful, if it was fruitful. And we're going to see that in just a second, which brings us to <clears throat> this next scene that I really want to focus on today. Because here is where uh, we get another of one of these literary brackets that Mark likes to do, a Mark sandwich. If you've been with us, we've been showing how Mark uses this really cool, clever technique. And he has this literary technique where he brackets uh, a section of material with two parallel references that are very similar. And then the stuff in the middle turns out to be the really important part. And the, the, the outside brackets sort of explain the stuff in the middle. So sometimes it'll be an Old Testament quote followed by another Old Testament quote and bracketing a bunch of important material in the middle. Sometimes it's the healing of a blind man, then the healing of another blind man. And in the middle is a bunch of really important stuff. It turns out to be the important part, just like a sandwich, right? I mean, the bread's important, but it's the stuff in the middle that really makes the sandwich, right? And so this time, it's going to be this weird encounter that Jesus has with a fig tree. And then later, what happens when he returns to the fig tree? And in between, he has this dramatic scene in the Jerusalem temple. And so we're going to read about, first, we're going to read about this fig tree. And I'm just going to warn you, you're going to feel bad about, for this fig tree. You're going to be like, it's a poor fig tree. It didn't do anything, right? But we'll understand what happens in just a second. All right, here we go. Verse 12, the next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry and seeing in the distance a fig tree. And what's it say? In leaf. So it means it promised fruit. He went out to find, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Now we might be thinking, dude, if it's not the season for figs, why are you looking for figs? But the answer was because it was in leaf. It was in leaf, meaning it promised fruit, but there was none right? It was all dressed up with nowhere to go. And so Jesus is, he's very intentional. He's, he's going to use this. This is going to be a great object lesson here. So this is, this is the image. Now, side note, in the Old Testament, the image of God, it recurs over and over of him as a farmer, as God as a vine dresser, examining Israel as a vineyard or a field. That's just this common picture. And so I'm going to show you two pictures one from Isaiah and one from Micah that describes Yahweh examining the nation of Israel for fruit, okay? The fig tree or the grapevine is often in the Old Testament used to stand in for Israel. So here's Isaiah, the way he does it. Isaiah 5, <clears throat> I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. This is God singing a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it. In other words, God has prepared Israel to be this fruitful vineyard. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded what? Only bad fruit. So God came looking for fruit, and there wasn't any. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and the people of Judah, judge between myself and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I've done for it? When I looked, now there's that word again, when I looked, it's the same phrase. For good grapes, why did it yield only bad? 
Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I'll take away its hedge. It will be destroyed. He's talking about exile here. This is the exile of Israel. I will break down its wall to be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah and the vines he delighted in. And then what does it say he was looking for when he looked for fruit? What's it say the fruit he was looking for? He says he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed. And he looks for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Okay, now stick with me. I know this is kind of thick stuff here. We're we're, we're getting to the point. God pictures himself as this cultivator of a vineyard, right? Israel's the vineyard, and he investigates it for fruit, but there isn't any. What's the fruit he's looking for? Justice and righteousness. Justice and righteousness. This is all over the Old Testament. It's all over the place. And because he didn't find that fruit, he pronounces judgment on the vineyard. Okay, here's the picture over in Micah, Micah chapter 7. What misery is mine? I'm like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard, but there is no cluster of grapes to eat. None of the early, what? Figs that I crave. So this is Jesus, remember, performance art. He's stepping into the, the role of Yahweh himself. He's stepping in. He's, he's, he's showing everybody a point. The faithful have been swept from the land. Not one upright person remains. Everyone lies in wait to shed blood. They hunt each other with nets. So we see the two parallels, yeah? God comes and he looks for fruit. What's the fruit he's looking for? Justice and righteousness. Justice and righteousness. When he doesn't see it, he, he curses, metaphorically, the, the nation. And Jesus comes to a fig tree that promises fruit, but there isn't any. So what does Jesus do? He curses the fig tree, straight out of the Yahweh playbook here. He said to the tree, this is Jesus in, in Mark eleven fourteen. may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Okay, so this is important to realize. Jesus is not just really hangry here, and, you know, he's just like taking all of his, you know, anger out on this poor bush. He's enacting a parable. It's going to explain what he's about to do with the temple. So just to recap, let's, let's recap. The day before Jesus comes into the temple, he looks around. He looks around. Mark gives us that detail for a reason. It's a throwaway line to us, but he gives us that detail for a reason, that Jesus came in and looked around. What was he doing? He's examining it for fruit. Now, how do we know that's what he's doing? Because the next day he sees a fig tree, which stands for Israel. It should have fruit on it because it's in leaf, but it doesn't have any fruit, so he curses it. This is straight out of God's playbook here. All right, everybody with me so far? So this is the first part of the little mark bracket, right? Okay, now we get to the meat of the sandwich. Here we go, on uh, verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts, and he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. As we read through this, keep in mind, nowhere does it say Jesus lost his temper. You know, we have this picture of Jesus like, you know, just like going ballistic and like, you know, just going crazy on everybody and screaming or something like that. Nowhere does it say that. Now, this is something else to understand too. About this time, about what was happening here, it was allowed to buy and sell in the temple. You had to. 
You had to. This was always done in the temple. And it was allowed to exchange money because at the time you carried around what kind of money? Roman money, right? You had Roman coins. We've talked before. What's printed on every Roman coin? Caesar is? Somebody help me. Lord. Caesar's Lord. You can't take that into the temple, right? It's got the face of Caesar on there. You can't take that in the temple. It's like idolatry. And so you can think of the temple, you know how the Vatican today is kind of like its own little country? If you like, go into the Vatican, you've left Italy, you go into the Vatican. Well, you think of the temple kind of like that. So when you go into the temple and you're doing business or you're doing anything there, it's kind of like its own world, right? You exchange your Roman money for temple money, for Jewish, for this Hebrew money. So these coins had to be exchanged. So Jesus is not condemning buying and selling. We're going to see what he's condemning in just a second. Some folks are like, oh, you can't buy and sell. You know, you can't have it like a Starbucks in the foyer of your church. That's bad or something like that. That's not the, that's not the point here. It's not the money changing hands that's the problem. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. Again, you had to buy doves. You had to. This was accepted practice from the very beginning of the temple. When you went to sacrifice, you sacrifice doves. Not everybody raises doves, right? So you go, you buy your dove so that you can then go into the temple and sacrifice. So this is normal practice. You're allowed to do this. Again, he's not condemning the fact that you buy doves. He's doing something way more radical here. And he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Essentially, Jesus is shutting it down. Now, what did he do to the fig tree? Shut it down, right? What's he doing to the temple? Shutting it down. The fig tree explains what he's doing here. So, I know some people like refer to this as the cleansing of the temple. He's not cleansing the temple. He's shutting it down. He's not reforming the temple. He is symbolizing here God's judgment on the entire temple system itself. In verse 17, it says, and as he taught them, notice, this is not a a, a maniac who's screaming and like can't speak. He's teaching them. So while he's doing this, (laughs) he's teaching them. And here, and, and next, guys, think about this. So he says, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? And here's the hammer blow. But you have made it a den of robbers. In a, a den of robbers, there's been a lot of discussion about this phrase here, a den of robbers. Think about this. A den of robbers does not mean that they're robbing the people coming to the temple. A den is not where the robbers do their thieving right? What is a den? A den is where the robbers go to feel safe. It's the hideout, right? It's where they think they are safe from judgment. You go to the den of robbers to feel safe. That's what the temple was to the religious leaders, right? And now let's go back to the Old Testament for a second. I was lying when I told you we were done with history. Here we go. Jeremiah 7. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house. What's that? That's the temple. And there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Reform your ways and your actions. Reform, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, 
That is, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, the widow, if you do not shed innocent blood in this place, if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe. Safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. Now what is a den of robbers? A den of robbers is they are the people who act unjustly and corruptly, but think because they're in the temple, they're safe. Are you with me? Guys, how many Christians walk around with their ticket to heaven and treat each other horribly? And they think I'm safe because I'm part of the right church, right? I'm safe because I believe all the right things. I'm safe because I'm an American or I vote a certain way. All the things that I assume mark me as special, all the things that I assume exempt me from actually following Jesus in the way I treat other people. And here comes Jesus. He's intentionally riding on a cult that's never been ridden in, in fulfillment of this Zechariah passage of the humble Messiah who promises peace. And the only way Israel can imagine peace coming is the way it came through the, the, the Maccabees, right? Through military victory. And what are we going to do? We're going we're gonna to pull down palm branches. We're going to wave them. We're going to sing psalms of, of military victory as he's marching in. And Jesus doesn't rebuke them, but he goes to the temple. And what does he do? He looks around. And the next day, he's walking by a fig tree, the symbol of Israel. He goes up to it. He, does, he sees it doesn't have any fruit. And he curses it so that everybody can hear. And then he wanders into the temple, shuts it down, quoting the word and accusing those in charge of being complicit with their corruption and their injustice. And because they're in the temple, they think they're safe. And Jesus arrives and shuts it down. Now back to Mark. He says this in verse 18. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. I bet, right? For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Now we come to the, the ending bracket. This is the bottom bun of Mark's sandwich. Verse 20. In the morning, as they went along, they saw that fig tree withered from the roots, meaning, like the temple, it had become, become completely disconnected from its life source. It was completely disconnected from any nourishment, right? It was literally dead on the inside. That is the image of this fig tree, withered from the roots, dead. And Peter remembered, and he said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed is withered. Now, what's cool is Mark, just to make extra sure we know what all this is about, he writes in a couple chapters, that on the very next day, the disciples are going to say this about the temple. As Jesus was leaving the temple, <laughs> his disciples said, teacher, look, uses the same words, it's very parallel language, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. And Jesus says, 
You see all these great buildings. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And Luke's gospel, when we look at it, it says that Jesus weeps as he looks around at the city, knowing what is about to happen. In AD 70, the whole city is just destroyed because they have an uprising, because they have an uprising against the Romans. And he weeps knowing the destruction that is about to come in just a few years. And Jesus is warning them. He, tells them, he says, the temple has become corrupted. It's a haven for exploiters. And because you think you can say, this is the temple, this is the temple, this is the temple, it doesn't matter how you treat anybody. So what I want to do, I want to, we're wrapping up this series, and I want to wrap this up with a few concluding thoughts. And my hope is, I, I, we've said several times, this, this has been kind of a heavy series, right? Um, but that is on purpose. And, and I don't want us to just breathe a sigh of relief that, thank goodness, this Lenten series is over, you know, so we can get back to messages that make us feel good and that, you know, don't really challenge us. My hope is that we are stirred. We take this season, this Lenten season, to be stirred as a church body, to become true followers of Jesus. Not just the, the convinced, but the true converted. True Christians in the, in the real sense of the word, right? Not just nice church people, because you're all nice church people. We're all nice church people, I'm sure. And not just religious people who agree to the right things, or, but don't really believe any of it or act on any of it. We, we, I like to refer to, to those kind of folks as Bibelonians, right? Those aren't Christians. They're Bibelonians. They're people who obsess over quoting Scripture. They obsess over, they, they, they worship Scripture like a god, but they miss the living Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and His name was Jesus. We miss out on the living Word of God who was made flesh, who dwelt among us, and, t and invited us to follow Him, to follow Him. And so my, my question for us today is, what is the fruit in us that Jesus is looking for? What is the fruit that Jesus is looking for? Let's not let this opportunity pass us by. Is the fruit just being part of a nice church with the right we believe statements, you know, the bullet list on the website? Is that the fruit? Is it, is it singing great songs on Sunday that really, you know, move us and get us excited? Is it having like a really killer sermon series? Is that the fruit we're looking for? Is good fruit having all the right opinions and making sure that everybody knows how right we are? No. The fruit Jesus is looking for can be summed up in one word. It's become a dirty word today, but it's one word that is summed up throughout the scriptures. The good fruit that Jesus is looking for can be summed up entirely in the word justice. And it's one of the most truly demonic things in our world right now that any talk of justice has now entered into the nonsense of political labeling, right? You know what I'm talking about. Some of you, when I say that word, it, it automatically brings up all kinds of, ooh. This idea that justice is somehow just woke or liberal or conservative or progressive or whatever. 
And, and yes, there are ways that our culture today throws the word justice around in the expressions that are not biblical, right? We acknowledge that. But is it any wonder? Do, are we, should we be surprised that the cry of the heart of even the heathen who doesn't know God is for justice? It, they're crying for truth. They're crying. They're looking for what only God can bring. They're looking for justice and truth. Justice is at the very root of God's work in the world. It's what he promises the souls in Revelation who are clamoring for justice. He says it's coming. It's coming. God's work is not just saving souls into heaven. It's bringing shalom and peace and righteousness and justice for the flourishing of human beings. And we get to be a part of that. It's his kingdom come, his will being done on earth as it is in heaven, right? It's his kingdom being made manifest here on earth and in how we serve and how we love other people and how we humble ourselves and how we lay down our privilege out of love, out of reflecting what Jesus did for other people. That's reflecting his image. And here's where maybe I'll risk just offering another unpopular opinion since I'm on a roll. As a church, if we become complacent about justice, and I'm talking about the whole church, I'm not just, I'm not picking on generations here. You guys are great. But the church, you know, kind of the Western, you know, you know what I'm talking about. As a church, if we become complacent about justice, I believe we risk experiencing God's judgment in the same way that the Jerusalem temple did. And I don't mean that by saying that God's is going to punish us or curse us because Jesus took the curse on the cross. I firmly believe that. I believe God's not cursing anymore, right? Jesus took the curse. But when we talk about God's judgment, it means something a lot different, I think, than a lot of us just assume judgment means. We think about judgment, we think like, you know, like God is some Zeus figure on the mountain, like zapping people with electric bolts, right? Judgment, divine judgment, is not really about God punishing or beating us up. Scripturally speaking, when we talk about judgment, judgment is when God allows people to experience the natural consequences of their action. That is one of the best ways to understand God's judgment in Scripture. It's when He allows people to experience the consequences of their action, both, and He does that both for our own good, and even there, he's doing it out of love. He does it for our own good so that we will repent and turn to him, right? But he also does it for the good of the world around us so that we don't do more harm than good to the people that he loves so much. See, I I can't believe that God has any interest in blessing uh, local toxic churches that grossly misrepresent him to the world. I think those churches are on their own. That's a dangerous place to be. And I say that humbly. I, I want us always to, to be saying, God, may that not be us, and reveal those ways that we get away from your will, right? Because I don't believe he blesses that. And this is not just an Old Testament kind of thing. We read our Bibles. We see this is true in the New Testament. Uh, the apostle James, he has some very harsh rebukes. I won't read through these. You can look at them later. But he has some harsh rebukes for churches that, that tolerate uh, economic injustice in their communities. He, he gets serious about it. 
the Apostle Paul gets furious, especially with the Corinthian church, uh, for exploiting the poor, for exploiting the underprivileged, and telling them that it would be better for them not to gather as a church because some of their Christian practices are actually anti-Christ. In fact, there's one really terrifying passage that Paul says that these unjust behaviors that they're, they're engaging in is why some folks in their church were getting sick and even dying. Not to mention in the Revelation, we see the seven churches that he both commends and judges. He, he speaks the truth of what they're going through, and he allows, he says, the, what, what you guys are doing, you're losing your first love. These things are going to come upon you. I mean, and contemplate this. God loves his people. He loves the world so much that if he is willing to tear down the temple, that's the house that he built because of its corruption, should we be surprised at all that so much of the American church is being judged and found wanting in some way, in the same way? When there's so much corruption, you turn on the news, you don't have to turn on like a religious channel, you can just turn on secular news and they you know, it's out there. Some of the denominations today that are roiling because of just some of the scandals that are happening in, within the leadership. There's so much corruption and racism and power grabbing and adultery and abuse and greed. And like I said, that's the leadership. So it's, this, this is a, this is a team, this is a family meeting here. I kind of, I'm looking at today, this is like family business, right? As I said, this is not the message I'm going to preach on Easter. Don't worry. You can invite your friends and your neighbors. But today, we're taking care of business. We're taking care of family. This is a team huddle. The people that we want to be. The people that we represent. The, the God that we represent to the world. We want to be humble enough to always ask, God, how am I representing you? What am I, how am I being to the world? And Lent is the season for repentance. That's what the season is. The Lent is the season for repentance. And if you remember from week one, it's not the repentance of sinners that Lent is really all about. Not the sinners outside the walls, outside the church. It's the repentance of the saints inside her walls. That is the opportunity we're taking. And I know repentance is not fun. It's not fun for anybody, right? Especially if you've been thinking the whole time you're in the safe camp. If you've been going, this is the temple, this is the temple, this is the temple, right? Repentance isn't fault. The call for repentance makes a lot of people mad. Why were the temple leaders so upset with Jesus? They weren't upset with him because he was doing miracles. They were upset with Jesus because he didn't, they realized he didn't come to Jerusalem to judge Rome. He came to Jerusalem to judge Israel. They were like, how dare you? See, guys, the biggest threat to the church isn't the world out there despite what some of the righteous fear mongers want to tell you. The biggest threat to the church is not the world out there. The biggest threat to the gospel are people in the church who don't really believe the way of Jesus really works. If we ever get to where we just don't believe the way of Jesus really works, then we're done being fruitful. And God has no need for us. That's when we tell Jesus to sit down and let us handle this we draw our swords. Repentance is hard, but guys, it's also liberating. Every single one of you who call yourself a Christian, myself included, think to the day, think back to the moment you invited Jesus in your heart. Think back to the day you repented of your sins 
I'm guessing that was both a devastating and liberating moment at the same time, right? Revelation is, it can be grueling to, to that moment of clarity. It hurts, right? It's devastating, but it's glorious because it's repentance that brings revival. And that is what we want. We are not content with playing church for another 34 years, 39 years. No. Repentance brings a revival. That is what we want. So maybe for some of us, this is a time of repentance. At least it is for me. It is for me. We bow your heads with me as I pray for us. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. <sighs> Lord, I confess, uh, I, I often struggle to believe that your way works in the world. I know it works in, in like relationships and in individual relationships. We've seen that. But to truly be committed, Lord God, to enemy love, to, to blessing our persecutors, uh, to humble servant-heartedness, to not claiming and boasting and fighting for our rights, Lord, that is so foreign to us. So we just need you to break our hearts with what breaks yours, Lord God. As you, as you wept over Jerusalem, as you said, oh Israel, if only you had known, Lord God, you surely must feel that grief for our hard-heartedness sometimes. Lord, knowing if we had only really understood what would bring us true peace, what would bring us true victory, if we could just see and recognize you, Lord God, in our fellow man. And, and so, God, it's the cliche that we ask you to open up our eyes, give us eyes to see. But more than that, Lord, form us into people who value others and esteem others and love others, regardless of whether they like us back. May we boast, Lord God, only in our weakness. May we be fountains, Lord God, of generosity and forgiveness. Bring us that revelation, Lord God, that leads to revival and repentance. The revelation that, that the way peace comes really is the way Jesus brought it. And so, God, breathe on us, Lord God. We ask you to breathe on us. Breathe over us uh, your courage, Lord God, in this crazy, crazy time we live in. We love you, Lord. We love you. And I speak for a lot of us, Lord, when we, we just say, come, come among us, Lord Jesus, and form us into those kinds of people that represent you well in this world. In your name we pray, Lord. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Will you stand to your feet? My brothers and sisters, our prayer partners are coming forward today. And if there's anything that you need prayer about, going, anything going on in your life, you need God's healing. You need God's move in your life. You need him to move. If you want to just come and just unburden yourself and repent before the Lord and ask him to bring a fresh move of himself into your life, to just reveal himself to you in a fresh way. You just want to start fresh. Maybe you've been a Christian for 50 years or maybe you've never been a Christian before, but today is your day and you want to start fresh with Jesus. And you really want to follow Jesus, not just follow religion, or the, the, the religion of your fathers and your mothers, but you want to follow Jesus and step into his footsteps, this is your day. Come forward and let these beautiful people pray with you. Amen. Brothers and sisters, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you 
and be gracious to you. May he lift his countenance and pour out his mercy in this day that we're living in. Grace and peace to be to you. Bye-bye.